do you enjoy puzzles? You know, you get the cardboard box, and there's the picture there, and then you got all the pieces, and you're just trying to f- figure it out, like, how does this all go together? You know, and so sometimes, you know, you get these hard puzzles, and the, the pieces, they are all, like, similar colors and similar sizes and trying to figure it out. I mean, it can take a while. It can be really difficult. You know, Steph loves that stuff. You know, she can sit down with the puzzle in just hours, and she loves it, trying to figure it all out and piece it all together and fit it all together. And, man, I don't like puzzles at all. I'm telling you, like, I can already see the picture. I know the end of the story. I know how it turns out, right? And so, um, you know, and she puts it together. And sometimes you get a beautiful picture. I think the last one she did was cereal boxes. You know, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, there, there it is. And I, don't, I can't get into it. Now, if the whole family's doing it, I'll join in. You know, I want, I want to be a part of it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be part and I'll, I'll do it. But I'd rather, you know, maybe do something a little more active or something like that. However, if you're talking like brain teasers and like logic problems and, uh, you know, when you don't know the answer, like I get into that. You know, I, I like that, trying to figure out the logic of something and, and work it all. I enjoy that. Um, but, you know, whether it's puzzles or brain teasers, logic problems, or just problems in life, uh, one of the truths, one of the realities of the human experiences is for the most part, uh, you find the solution quicker when you work together. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're working with someone on a puzzle, it kind of goes faster. A brain teaser, a logic problem, when you're kind of fleshing it out together, it goes quicker. And same things with just problems in life. We figure out stuff faster when we work together. You know, one of the beauties of the Christian life is God hasn't called us to live it alone. We're adopted into a family so that we can encourage one another, sharpen one another, challenge one another, encourage one another, build each other up. And there are some times when you reach passages in the scripture where you're reading it and you're saying, I need some help with this one. You know, I need somebody to come alongside and just kind of help explain this to me, help me make sense of that. And we reach one of those passages this morning, okay? We're continuing our series through First and Second Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 3, and it's our confidence series. And Peter's writing, and he's sharing some stuff that as you're reading it, you're kind of scratching your head saying, uh, Peter, I don't, know, I don't know what you're saying, okay? This is, this is difficult. Martin Luther he wrote of this passage, and he said, there is no more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it to me. All right? So with those encouraging words, we'll just dive right in. Uh, you know, one, one of the things about Central, if you're kind of newer here, is... Uh, w- primarily we just go verse by verse through, through the scripture. So I don't have the luxury of just kind of like ducking out and saying, you know what, this is hard. Let's just kind of skip it. Or this is difficult. might make us feel uncomfortable. So we'll just kind of move by it. Now, I, I, don't, I can't do that, right? We got to tackle it. Um, otherwise, if I tried to do something like that, you would look at me and say, Steve, you know, we just skipped the whole paragraph there. Like what's going on? All right. So we, we just dive right in. We tackle it. We explore. And let's try to make sense of it this morning. It's a puzzle of a passage, but I think we can figure it out. First Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So at first glance, some of what Peter's writing make, makes some sense. He's explaining some truths of the gospel, and we get that, and they're rich truths, and, and, we, and we enjoy that. But then as we, we look a little closer, there are other parts in these five verses where we're reading them, and you know we can hunt down theological clues, grammatical clues, contextual clues, and we're still left kind of scratching our heads a little bit and with questions and saying, okay, uh, Peter, what are you saying here? I mean, what do you mean? What, what, so what was Jesus doing that weekend between his death and resurrection? Uh, you're saying he went to some spirits. Like, who are these spirits? And they're in prison. Where, where is this prison? Uh, and he's proclaiming a message to them. Like, what, what message is he proclaiming to these spirits in prison? And, and baptism saves you, and it corresponds to the ark and all that. Like, what do you mean? And, well, as I was studying this week, there were a lot of moments where I felt like Martin Luther. Help! You know, I just I need some help with this. I went to one commentator, just kind of figure out what he was saying about it, and he wrote, uh, this is a very difficult passage. Thanks a lot, okay? I, I, you know, I could have told you that. Um, it's funny, though, because when you flip into Second Peter chapter 3, one of the things Peter writes in Second Peter 3 is, hey, some of what Paul wrote in his letters was really difficult to understand. And I'm reading this and saying, well, Peter, you return the favor, okay? Thank you very much. Uh, so we get to tackle it. Um, as we begin, we want to begin with context, okay? And just to kind of refresh our memories from last week, Peter, he's writing about how how Christians will sometimes suffer uh, for doing good, okay? So you might be righteous, you might be faithful, you might be obedient, and still suffer. And in that suffering, there is blessing. And because you suffer while doing good, and this hope is proclaimed, people are going to be asking you questions, and you're going to be able to tell them the hope that you have. And, and all that is fantastic. But at the same time, the human experience, when we are suffering, uh, we come to this, and, and our temptation is to say to Peter, I mean, you're saying I'm blessed, but I don't really feel blessed right now. I mean, life is hard. This is difficult. This is painful. There's heartache here. It does not feel like blessing. And so out of that context, Peter then shifts our focus to Jesus Christ. And he says, well, we'll look at Jesus. He's the only righteous one. He's the only just one. And what did he do? He suffered for us the unjust, the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. Okay, it's a rich, simple explanation, beautiful explanation of the gospel. But he's putting suffering in context. Jesus did this in order to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so it's almost like he's asking the question, okay, so do you see how there can be blessing and suffering? And then we're all left, well, yes, because we're the recipients of it, right? We're the recipients of the suffering of Christ and the great blessing that then comes from this. And, and Peter's underscoring the fact, too, here, that this is real suffering that Jesus went through, okay? He, he died. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. You remember one of the things that Jesus said on the cross? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, 
Okay, and so this is real suffering. Jesus died a real death because he was a real human being. He's both God and man. Uh, he wasn't some type of phantom or ghost or something, like inhabiting a, few, a human body, something like this. He was a real human being, and he died a real death. And after he died, he didn't just cease to exist, all right? He wasn't just like sleeping in the netherworld or in heavenly clouds or something like this. Um, he didn't get wings and become an angel. And by the way, none of that will happen to us either, all right? When we die, we don't cease to exist. We don't just like sleep in the clouds somewhere. We don't get wings. We don't become angels. None of that. What happens to Jesus happens to us, right? There's, you're st- you still exist. And so Jesus is very much awake, just like all of us will be. Um, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the Bible says. And Jesus, he'll actually talk about a time in Matthew where there's an unbeliever who dies and He's in this place of torment. His suffering is incredible. And he's just begging just for a little a, a drip of water. Will you just put your finger in some water and bring it to me? That's all I want. This is, the, this is the type of suffering that he's experienced. So you never cease to exist. And Peter, as he's writing and he's telling us, okay, Jesus didn't cease to exist. He's still alive. He's still, he's still real. Uh, and here's, here's what's happening. And he tells us what was happening during that weekend, okay? That weekend between his death and his resurrection, all right? So this is really cool. He said, man, this is, this is kind of neat. I get to see what Jesus, some of what Jesus was doing between his death and his resurrection. Um, that's the cool part. The hard part is, okay, Peter, what do you mean, though? All right? Like, this is really difficult. So uh, now, as we kind of wrestle through some of these questions um, you know, I try to be conversational with you and show you how, like, all this stuff really applies to real life, and it makes a difference in how we think and, therefore, how we live. Uh, but this is one of those things where I get to just kind of, like, geek out on you, okay? Like, total Bible nerd stuff, just like, kind of get into it, dive into the language context a little bit. I enjoy that. So, uh, you know, if you're like, Steve, this is, like, weird, man. You're so, like, wonkish right now. I can't, like, just kind of bear with me, all right? But hopefully it's interesting, and we can kind of enjoy this together. But the first thing we see this weekend is Jesus is alive in the Spirit, okay? He's alive in the Spirit, and he goes, and he makes a proclamation to spirits, And the first question is, okay, Jesus, like, who are these spirits that you're making this proclamation to? Who are they? Well, the Greek word that Peter uses for spirits is the word pneumason, okay? This word pneumason, it occurs a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, Only one time does that word refer to humans, Okay, the, the author of Hebrews is going to use it one time to talk about righteous uh, spirits, righteous people. Uh, but every other time in the New Testament, whenever this word pneumason is used, it's always used of angels or demons, okay, in the spirit world, either angels or demons. And in context here, Jesus is speaking to angels in prison. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say, fallen angels. We'll go with demons, okay? Righteous angels are not going to be in prison, okay? So fallen angels, demons, this is most likely who Jesus is, is speaking to and making this proclamation to, demons in prison. Uh, that brings up the next question. Uh, where, where is this prison, okay? You know, where, where, where is this prison? What's happening there? And if you go to Jude 
cha- uh, uh, verse, there's only, there's only one chapter in Jude, but Jude verse 6, uh, in that verse, it talks about angels who leave their proper domain and then go and, and do things that are unnatural, um, and now they're held in eternal chains under darkness for the great day, anticipating the great day of judgment, all right? And so from that verse, we can conclude, okay, there is a holding cell, a prison for angels who uh, are now demons, fallen angels. They're in chains, and it's in utter darkness. Not a cool place to be, right? This doesn't sound fun at all, but this is where they are. Second Peter uh, chapter 2, Peter writes and says, God did not spare the angels uh, when they fell, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to the pits of darkness held for judgment. All right. Now, that Greek word there, Tartarus, in fact, if you've studied Greek mythology at all, perhaps you've run across this term, Tartarus. Often Greek mythology refers to the netherworld and things like this. This is the only time it's used in the Bible, okay? The only time we find it in the New Testament. And unfortunately, it gets mistranslated, I think mistranslated, in just about every English translation that we have. Okay, it's often, most likely, you go to 2 Peter 2, 4, and your Bible will probably translate the word hell, okay? Um, Tartarus is a proper name, a proper noun, a proper place, okay? Um, and it's, it's not hell. Uh, Tartarus, when, when you look at it, um, it's, it's pretty clear that this is a place where angels who have fallen, demons, are held in prison. They are kept in bound. It's not a reference to the final destination of sinful humanity, people who die in their sin. It's not even a reference for angels who, and their final destination, all right? It is a, is it a temporary holding prison for fallen angels who are waiting the final judgment um, and to translate it hell just kind of confuses it just a little bit because we tend to think final judgment. That's not this, okay? So just to kind of step back and look into it, Jesus goes to Tartarus, a temporary prison, and he's speaking, proclaiming to fallen angels. Now, one of the reasons why this is important is because this passage uh, has confused a whole lot of Christians, right? In fact, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it's a great creed, by the way. I love the Apostles' Creed. It's a great creed. Just, you know, there's a lot of good creeds out there. It doesn't mean they're perfect. One of the, one of the lines in the Apostles' Creed says that uh, after Jesus died and was buried, that he descended into hell. It's based off of this passage in 1 Peter 3. Problem is, I don't think he actually went to hell. I think he went to Tartarus, this temporary prison holding cell. And it's caused a lot of confusion in the church. You know, one of the things that Jesus says to the thief on the cross is, today you will be with me in paradise, all right? It's really hard to be in hell and paradise at the same time, okay? But, um, so, just kind of going forward, we have fallen angels in prison. The prison is this place called Tartarus, and uh, the question then comes, okay, well, who are these fallen angels? Who are these demons? What do, what do they do? Why are they there? Uh, some point to Genesis chapter 6, 
In Genesis chapter 6, you get a, a somewhat kind of a strange passage when, when you're kind of reading it. And it's, uh, it's demons who have relations with human women, I believe, in an effort to distort the human race and prevent the Messiah from coming and, and God enacting his plan of salvation. All right? And so some point to that and say, okay, it's those demons who are in prison and Jesus is going to speak to them. It's possible. The, the tricky part with that view is that in this section, Peter makes it really clear that it's demons who were not obedient, who do not obey while Noah is building the ark, okay? It's happening while Noah is building the ark. And so the demons who go and have relations with women, that's before the ark, okay? And then, you know, the flood comes, wipes out their half-demon, half-human uh, offspring, and God's plan of salvation is intact. And, but, you know, I think more likely— uh, it's hard to be dogmatic here, but I think more likely these are demons who are probably taunting Noah and trying to prevent Noah from building the ark for God's plan to come through, and, and that they're the ones who are then uh, captured and held in this prison um, for a long time. Now, the things about it, one of the things, you know, we don't know all the answers, but one of the things we do know is they're in prison, they're in chains, they're in darkness, and demons are not omniscient okay? That is, they don't know everything. So they don't know how it all turns out. They've been in darkness all these years since the flood, and they might be wondering, okay, you know, it, how's Satan doing? Are, are we going to win? Are we going to prevent God's plan from taking place? You know, are, are, can, can we uh, seize control of the earth? And, everything? and so they might be wondering, how is everything going? Because they're not omniscient. And so Jesus goes and he visits this prison after his death and burial, and he makes a proclamation to them. What does he tell them? We don't know. Right? It's not, it doesn't tell us what he tells them. I think from the context, though, what he might have told them based on his death on the cross, his payment for sin in order to bring us to God, based on Genesis and how the promise that uh, Satan's plan would be crushed at the cross— I think Jesus uh, is possibly proclaiming to them that, hey, your attempt to pollute the human race, your attempt to defy God, to demonize people um, into defying God, all these demonic efforts, all these satanic strategies, they've all failed. The Messiah has come. I'm him. And I died on the cross for all of humanity so that those who believe in me might have eternal life. And guess what? I'm going to rise in just a couple days and everyone will know that I am the Messiah. Hell has lost. Heaven has won. The ultimate victory has been achieved. I think it's logical to believe that this is the message that Jesus is proclaiming to these spirits held in this prison. We can't be dogmatic on that, but one of the things we can be dogmatic on is Jesus doesn't hide the good news of the gospel, you know. He, some aspects of kingdom life, he kind of hides a little bit through parables. He never hides the truth of the gospel. He's made it clear for all of creation, his gospel plan. 
And one of the things for us as believers, we're now invited in, not simply just to be recipients of his plan, but also now to be ambassadors, to go out on his behalf, to be messengers. See, here's the thing. Just as he proclaims the gospel, he invites his followers, his believers, to also be proclaimers, heralds of the gospel. We get to proclaim the ultimate victory. This is what he calls us to do, to proclaim the ultimate victory. Jesus has won, hell has lost. And it's a great, fascinating, exciting victory that we get to proclaim. It is awesome. And then Jesus starts, uh, Peter, he starts writing about the ark. And, you know, perhaps the demons try to stop it, defy it. Uh, We don't really know. And maybe Jesus told them about too. Hey, that too. He said, hey, you know, your plan to stop the ark, it didn't work. Noah was faithful. He built it. It was completed. Uh, his family of eight made it safely through the flood. Humanity was preserved. God's in- incredible plan of salvation and redemption uh, for, for his, his people, it, it happened. Judgment fell. Everything that Satan and his demons attempted to destroy, well, it didn't pan out. Heaven won, hell lost, the ultimate victory has been secured. We don't really know, um, but here Peter is, he's writing about this, and it's all great, it's all exciting, and then he draws this parallel, and he says, and hey, that corresponds to baptism, which saves you. And all of a sudden, we're scratching our heads again. Okay, baptism, how how does this, what what are you talking about, Peter? The, The key phrase here is corresponds to this, okay, which corresponds to this. And we're asking, the okay, corresponds to what? And as you d- dive into the passage here, what's he talking about in the previous verse? The ark, okay, the symbolic picture of the ark. In other words, Peter is saying the ark in Noah's day lifted Noah and his family out of the waters and gave them safety. So the water of baptism today, as you come out of the water, it symbolizes salvation to those who believe. All right? What, in, in other words, the waters of baptism don't save you. Uh, the act of being baptized doesn't save you. Just as in Noah's day, the waters didn't save Noah. Even building the ark didn't save Noah. What saved Noah and his family? He believed in God, and he was faithful, and he said, okay, God's telling me to build an ark, and it's really sunny outside, and everything looks nice, and I've never even seen a flood before, much less a boat, and you're telling me to build an ark? All right, I'm going to do it. I'm faithful, okay? That's what saved Noah and his family, and in the same way, baptism, obedience, right? It's not the act. It's the symbolic picture. It's the act of faithfulness, obedience, that symbolizes the salvation that's already achieved. When Noah built the ark and he and his family got into the ark, those waters around him, which represented judgment and death, for them, it was life-giving because it held up the boat, right? The, uh, Paul, when he writes in Romans about baptism, he, he, he paints a similar picture where the waters of baptism symbolize judgment and death and a watery grave. But for us as believers who come out of that, it's the picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how Jesus defeated judgment and death and the grave on our behalf. 
And so now, guess what? We, we get to be identified with Christ. There's a new life that we're called into. And that's what baptism pictures. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus and the new life that's given. Um, by the way, as believers, we're all commanded to be baptized. All right? All of us are commanded to have a believer's baptism. By the way, I, I know sometimes uh, you be baptized as an infant, and that's more like a dedication, okay? Where, hey, I'm, I'm dedicating my child. I want them to, to love God and follow after God, and that's the dedication. That's fine. But there's, there's a place in Scripture where we see a believer's baptism, where we understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're identifying with that, and we're proclaiming that he, he is my salvation. He is my hope. When Noah built the ark, it was a defining moment in his life because everyone's coming around. They're saying, hey, you're out to lunch, man. You're crazy. I don't know what you're doing. And what does he do? He builds the ark anyway. It was a defining moment of faith and obedience. And in many ways, being baptized is a defining moment of faith to a watching world and saying, I want my life to be identified with the life of Christ. And we've talked about it before, right? That when you're baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, that this is now your identification, and it takes on new meaning and what, what this means. We've, we've talked about that. But here, uh, the encouragement is for all of us that if you haven't had a believer's baptism, it is a defining moment of faith. And so I encourage you, you know, if you've never been baptized uh, be baptized. You know, you can talk to me, you can talk to Ethan, you can talk to Brian, uh, you can write us a note in the communication box, and you let us know, hey, I want to be, or maybe I have some questions about it. I want to dialogue with you further. Whatever the case, uh, let us know. But um, there is another aspect to this picture that sometimes is missed, and, and really the entire section, not, not just this segment. The section begins with the suffering of Jesus on the cross, Okay? And, if, and if you were to step right in to the suffering on the cross, just the picture of the cross, you might look at that and say at that moment, well, it looks like hell is winning and heaven is losing. It looks like Jesus is losing right now. He's suffering. He's, he's in pain. This, I mean, this does not look good. If, if you rewind back further and then there's Noah and he's building an ark and it's beautiful outside and people are coming around and they're saying... I mean, what, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you doing this? Uh, everyone looking at him is thinking, uh, you're wasting your life, okay? There's so many things you could be doing that would be good and profitable and useful. And you're building a boat. Well, you know, we've, we've never even seen one of these before. You know, wh what are you doing? At, at that moment, he looks like a loser from a worldly standpoint. Understand this. There are times in life when you are faithful and obedient in an upside-down world where it's going to appear like you're losing, where, where the world's going to come alongside you and they're going to say, you look out to lunch. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. What, what are you thinking? Why, why are you living this way? You know, here, go with the flow. Do what everybody else is doing. And, and you're going to think differently and you're going to live differently. And for a moment, it might appear that you're losing. Guess when Jesus was on the cross, he wasn't losing. He was winning. He was winning the ultimate victory for all humanity. When Noah was building the ark, he wasn't losing. He was winning. He was winning a restoration uh, of humanity, a, a, a remnant of humanity for God to ultimately rescue humanity. His faithfulness, his obedience was winning. In this upside-down world, sometimes when you're faithful, 
the world's going to come against you. Life's not going to go your way. You're going to feel like you're losing. Understand this, never lose hope. Never lose hope because you know the end of the story, right? You, you know we win. So be faithful, be obedient, never lose hope. Peter, he paints the end of the story for us. He kind of, he kind of shows us a little bit, at least for, for, for Christ here, not, not the complete end, but what happened after his death. And he shows us that 40 days after his resurrection, our Lord ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God. And to be at the right hand of God is this place of power. It's a place of authority. It's a place of adoration. All right. And this is where Jesus is. It is a victory. Here he is. And so Peter, he's, he's simply wrapping up this text, I believe, to complete the ultimate victory and to show us the ultimate victory that Jesus achieved that he's sovereign over everything. He's in control over everything. He's sovereign over the human race. He's sovereign over the spirit world. He's, he's sovereign over faithful angels, and he's, he's sovereign over fallen demons who will ultimately be subjected to uh, eternal judgment as they wait in a holding cell right now. Um, but one of the things that I want to make sure that we understand this morning is, you know, sometimes we come to a passage like this, and it's a little bit tricky. And we can get hung up on some things, right? Okay, you know, who are these spirits? What, what's this spirit prison going on here? Uh, baptism. And we can come up with all these kind of different convoluted views of, of baptism and different things. It, there's some tricky things in this passage, to be sure. Um, but I don't think that's what Peter wants us to get hung up on. The point of the passage, when you step back and you look at the whole passage, is he's writing to a church who is suffering for Christ. And he's writing to encourage them that, hey, even in your suffering, there is blessing. Even in your suffering, and in fact, because of your suffering, when you do it faithfully, people are going to come and they're going to ask questions, and you're going to point them to the one who suffered unjustly. All of us, hey, we, we suffer, but we're also sinful. So, you know, there's an aspect of our suffering. It's like, well, you know, I kind of deserve that. I made my own bed and I'm lying in it, right? Now, sometimes we suffer because of what other people do. It's no fault of our own, but uh, there's unjust suffering as well. But anyway, Jesus is the only one who, has, who didn't deserve one ounce of suffering and yet suffered immeasurably for our sake. And as Peter is writing this, I think what he's doing is he's drawing our attention back to Jesus. He's saying, here's the one who suffered, who suffered unjustly, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And guess what? He won. He achieved the ultimate victory. He's at the right hand of God. He's in this place of power, this place of adoration, this place of authority. You know, when you understand that, it puts our suffering into context. And then there becomes some clarity as to why, as to how suffering fits in the whole scheme of things. Uh, you know, when there's clarity to life and how to live and everything, it, it, life makes sense, right? Um, when you're working on a puzzle and you figure it out, oh man, there's clarity. When, when you're suffering the, going through the, the, the logic of a brain teaser or something, you figure the logic, oh, there's clarity, when you deal with a problem, you find the solution. There's clarity is always helpful because you understand. You can make sense of things. When we get into trouble, it's when we lack clarity and we don't understand. Well, I don't know. 
And there are certain things when you lack clarity that can really trip you up. In the life of a believer, you know, it's rare that someone comes across maybe 1 Peter 3 and they're, they're wrestling through the end of this passage and they're saying, man, I don't understand spirit prisons. I, I don't understand how baptism saves. I don't know what he's talking about here. This is, this is hard. I'm, I'm out. Like, this totally tripped me up. I'm, I'm totally out now. I'm the, that doesn't happen a whole lot, right? Most of us, we come to a difficult passage in Scripture, we read through it, and we're like, well, I don't, I don't know what that meant. Uh, let's just go to the next paragraph. Maybe, maybe, maybe the next one will make more sense, right? That's how most of us operate. It doesn't really trip us up too much for most of us. You know what trips up a lot of Christians, a lot of believers? Suffering, pain, hardship, heartache. Why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Here I am being faithful. I'm trying to love God. I'm trying to serve him. Why is this happening? This is why Peter's writing. This is what he's saying. He's refocusing us back. He said, well, look at Jesus, the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous to be able to bring us to God. That brings clarity. It helps put suffering in context, in its proper context. Paul would write, and he would say, you know what? Our present sufferings, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You know what Paul's not doing? He's not minimizing our suffering, okay? He's not doing that. I mean, here's a guy who suffered incredibly. I mean, you're talking about suffering. Paul can tell you, tell us a little bit about suffering, okay? The guy was snake bit, shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was imprisoned, all kinds of stuff. This guy suffered for the case of Christ, the cause of Christ. But he's saying, when I see my suffering, In light of the glory that will one day be revealed, well, there's no comparison. He's able to put suffering in its proper context, and it changes how he lives. Now, there's hope, there's optimism, there's there's joy, all these things. It changes how you live when you put suffering in its proper context. Once the puzzle is completed... Once the logic makes sense, it's understood. When a difficult passage, when you begin to understand it, it makes all the difference. And so we come here, we wrestle through difficult things, hard things, but ultimately what the passage is doing is it's pointing us to, hey, here's the one who suffered, uh, the righteous one who suffered for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. It helps clarify the temporary sufferings of life and give us great hope in our Messiah and what he has achieved for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you would send your only son, Jesus Christ, the only righteous one into this broken, fallen, upside-down world, and God, that he would live a perfect life and that he would suffer, he would die in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. But God, he would defeat sin and death. He would be resurrected. He would ascend to your right hand, this place of power, this place of authority, this place of adoration, so that we can be confident, yes, our Messiah has achieved the ultimate victory. And God, now you invite us, your followers, your church, to go and proclaim this message. Help us to do it well this week. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.